Good morning. Pakistan unrest grows as regional elections are postponed. The dangers of a social media app is TikTok to blame. An auction that wasn't. And did the general counsel for the Pacifica Foundation help a union flout COVID rules? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday morning, March 24th, 2023. Pakistan's ousted former prime minister and opposition leader Imran Khan condemned Pakistan's election commission on Wednesday after regional elections were delayed in two populous provinces. The elections were scheduled for April 30th. They'll be now held on October 8th. The commission cited a shortage of funds and worsening security situation in the country. Meanwhile, in a video released just hours earlier, Khan alleged Pakistan's military wants him dead. I am warning all of you, if I am imprisoned or killed, then you have to stand and never accept it as a defeat. But you have to fight till the last ball. Again, I am telling you, they're going to eliminate me sooner or later so that they can get rid of me and the movement we started against these thieves who have looted this country for decades. Khan was the victim of an assassination attempt in November when he was shot in the leg during a rally in the capital city of Islamabad. Khan has angered Pakistan's military and its ruling political party, arguing the military has too much influence over the government. Professor of Religion and Politics at the University of Lahore, Junaid Ahmad, tells the news former cricket star Khan's populist appeal just keeps growing. If you're going to try to go for assassination, it better work the first time. This has only made him more popular. It has only made him seem like someone that has the courage to stand up to all of these power centers, regardless of his life. The assassination card is still there, but there's the risk to that is become so patently obvious. Now they've turned to the option of trying to arrest him on all sorts of trumped up charges that no one in the country is taking seriously that I'm speaking to. And what you had was at his own residence packed with thousands of people that's inside and then outside thousands of people. So if the security forces wanted to do something, it would have been a bloodbath. Even critical supporters of Khan, the methods that the state apparatus and the current regime are using are completely abominable. And Pakistani people can see that. So this is the situation we have right now. Imran Khan continues. One was expecting that maybe Khan, who is certainly still for grabs for assassination may try to kind of stay out of the public limelight but he is not he continues his the rally speeches he came all the way from lahore to the capital islamabad to make a rally speech meanwhile also complying with all court orders and everything and the logic that former prime minister imran khan is using is that this is the moment he cannot just go into hiding he cannot go to a basement like Biden during COVID, you know, and uh, as soon as he was ousted last April, the popular mobilization has never happened before. And the reason for that was quite simple. All of our former civilian politicians, including basically the current ones, when they were ousted, even unfairly by a military coup or whatever, they were thoroughly incompetent and corrupt themselves, so it's not like the people really cared to go out on the streets to defend them. Khan, on the contrary, is the exact opposite. For Pakistan, a country where there's a lot of cynicism about, uh, yes, 
people think that things are completely awry and that they may be supporters of Khan, but we did not expect people to come out. People are cynical about, we can talk about it, but we're not going to really come. This completely destroyed that myth and people have been uh, coming out consistently and in a sustained way since last April. And that is despite the very obvious attempt to assassinate him to he he's not backing down he's not backing down from showing his face in public and public rallies and speeches and so on despite the fact that the state has commanded all of the mainstream media outlets to ban his speeches then you can get them through other ways but all of the mainstream media have been instructed to completely not give him you know coverage his rallies his speeches and so on and so forth the question now is we don't really know what the power elite in this country are going to do with regard to elections the real question is when national elections will be held and those are the elections scheduled for october when khan was ousted they all resigned in mass from parliament so Elections have been expected to be held from that time, but of course the power elite keeps on postponing them on one pretext or the other. It is a civilian military alliance against basically one man. It is an unprecedented situation in which it is really about all of the power centers, both within the civilian democratic political sections of the population, as well as the military joining forces against one man and of course being backed by Washington in doing so. It's the people of Pakistan versus the power elite of the country. Initially, uh, the role was incredibly clear. Khan cannot stay in power. Khan's foreign policy is completely at odds with the United States, although even that it's not like he has any inherent antagonism towards the United States. It's just that he consistently opposed the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, and generally military solutions as solutions to any problem that emerges in the country of militants. Khan was never on the good side of the United States, although here's the thing. He has probably been the prime minister that has given the most interviews to U.S. media whenever they have wanted it, from CNN to whatever. And he has tried to make his position incredibly clear. The kind of foolish rhetoric of, oh, well, these are anti-American. No, leaders in the world. No, it is simply a critique of a American foreign policy. The worst part about it is that he was proven correct. <laughs> The, the Taliban came back to power. The American national security state never really forgave him. This is not really about Biden, really. This is really about the military Pentagon and the intelligence. They really were annoyed by Khan for the past 20 years. The relationship with China, his attempt to get cheaper energy from Russia, and his position on the Palestinian issue as well. That made him a persona non grata, and Washington clearly wanted him out at that point. Now, at this stage, though, Paul, Perhaps planners in D.C. may be slightly smarter than the ones here. And they are also very concerned that even if there's some type of successful assassination attempt or an arrest, we're almost pretty sure that this is going to backfire in a massive way. 
that will destabilize the country, destabilize perhaps in a positive way in the sense that there's a possibility of a real popular revolt in the country at this point. Junaid Ahmad is professor of religion and politics at the University of Lahore. In related news, six months after catastrophic floods in Pakistan, more than 10 million people lack access to safe drinking water in areas that suffered record-breaking rain. The UN's Children's Agency, or UNICEF, said in the report on Tuesday, families living in flood-hit areas have no alternative but to drink and use potentially disease-ridden water. Pakistan's worst floods began in June due to heavy rains, called a monsoon on steroids, killed at least 1,739 people, including 647 children, and affected 33 million others. The UNICEF report says only 36% of the country's water was considered safe for consumption. And here in the United States, on Capitol Hill, the CEO of the online video sharing app TikTok battled a bipartisan congressional assault on Thursday. Xiao Ji Chu was barraged with questions about a national security threat representatives claim affects 150 million Americans who use the app. TikTok has a billion users worldwide. Chu says his company is aware of the concerns with his company's Chinese owners and the vulnerability of the app's users. We have heard important concerns about the potential for unwanted foreign access to U.S. data and potential manipulation of the TikTok U.S. ecosystem. Our approach has never been to dismiss or trivialize any of these concerns. We have addressed them with real action. Now, that's what we've been doing for the last two years, building what amounts to a firewall that seals off protected U.S. user data from unauthorized foreign access. The bottom line is this. American data stored on American soil by an American company overseen by American personnel. We call this initiative Project Texas. That's why Oracle is headquartered. Today, US TikTok data is stored by default in Oracle servers. Only vetted personnel operating in a new company called TikTok US Data Security can control access to this data. Now, additionally, we have plans for this company to report to an independent American board with strong security credentials. Chu says TikTok isn't just concerned with potential espionage, but the effects the addictive videos might have on teens. Number one, we will keep safety, particularly for teenagers, as a top priority for us. Number two, we will firewall protected U.S. data from unwanted foreign access. Number three, TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. And fourth, we will be transparent and we will give access to third-party independent monitors to remain accountable for our commitments. But Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Washington Republican who's chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, disagrees. She says the app is a threat. To the American people watching today, hear this, TikTok is a weapon by the Chinese Communist Party to spy on you, manipulate what you see, and exploit for future generations. A ban is only a short-term way to address TikTok, and a data privacy bill is the only way to stop TikTok from ever happening again in the United States. The cynicism was bipartisan as Democrat Anna Eshoo also weighed in on what she says is China's ownership of American data. Our plan is to move American data to be stored on American soil I by the American that. company. I understand that, but, uh, uh, but you're sidestepping, or I haven't read anything uh, in terms of uh, TikTok, 
how you can actually say, and you spoke in your opening statement about a firewall relative to the data. But the Chinese government has that data. How, how can you promise that uh, that that will move into uh, into the United States of America and be protected here? Uh, Congressman, I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I've I asked that, that. I find that actually preposterous. TikTok CEO Chu agreed some data may have passed through servers in China, but he says all technology is global in the modern world, including the computer codes behind many of TikTok's features. The phone you use, the car you drive, is a, is a global collaborative effort. Now, but today, the business um, sites and the main parts of the code for TikTok is written by TikTok employees. Congresswoman, what we are offering is third-party monitoring of our source code. I am not aware of any company, American companies or otherwise, that has actually done that. Because we are saying we want to give you transparency and rely on third parties to make sure that we get all the comfort that we need about the experience. Xiao Chu is CEO of TikTok. TikTok was banned from federal government devices last year, and nearly all the states have similar bans. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In local news, a gaggle of protesters rallied outside the Doubletree Hilton on 51st Street on Wednesday. They carried a life-size voodoo doll of potential bidders on the old PS64, a community center known as Charas El Bohio at 605 East 9th Street. The doll was stuffed with flour and sawdust to put a curse on any new owners. But current owner Greg Singer eluded the curse as he managed to halt the auction, at least temporarily, by declaring bankruptcy. Reporters unaware of the cancellation made their way through the hotel, looking for the non-existent private auction. The protesters are calling themselves Charles Defenders, and organizer Kenny Tolia was there with a bucket he used as a drum. We're here to stop the uh, auction of Charis. Charis is a long-term community center on the Lower East Side that, that was uh, sold out from under the people of Lower East Side by Rudy Giuliani. And we're here to make sure that the injustice that was done then is, is fixed. Singer, the uh, developer who had bought the property, had also been trying to, to stop it. Uh, as far as I know, the, uh, the auction at this point might actually have been called off. Our tactic may have worked here. We want the mayor of New York, Mayor Adams, to use eminent domain to take back the, uh, the building as city property. The Guardians of Charles was formed to prevent the arson of the building because the building was wide open and uh, it could have easily been burned down by real estate arsonists. And, the building was recently landmarked. There was a lot of pressure. The empty lot where the building is would be more valuable to developers than the building itself. We've been organizing to stop that. We actually succeeded in forcing the city of New York to protect the building and seal it up. We all have great respect for Chino Garcia and for the founders of Charis, but we're here advocating it in our own way to make sure that the building goes back to the community. 
A more mainstream group, Save Our Community Center, declined to support the protest, but denounced Singer's desperate attempt to stop the foreclosure auction. The group has been fighting Singer since he purchased the school at auction in 1998, when Rudy Giuliani was mayor. Subsequent mayors promised to return the school, but none made good. Now activists are asking Mayor Eric Adams to save the community center. One of the protesters, Carrie Rubin, had a paper sculpture covered with environmental images. He pointed to one photo he displayed of a pigeon. At the moment the camera took the picture, its wings were at maximum outstretch and its tail feathers were like turning in air. It has a very unusual shape. I was joking that it looked like the Leonopteryx from Avatar, uh, the dragons that the uh, Navi ride in that science fiction movie. And what's the purpose of all of this? You're here at the Double Tree today. PS 64, which was known as the Charis Community Center in the 1970s, we've been trying to get it returned to the community to develop it as a neighborhood center. The city has been planning to auction it off to developers, so we were here objecting to that, and we'd like Mayor Adams to, at minimum, to hold public hearings so we present different options for what could be done with the building and ask the question, what is the highest and best use of this property? Singer bought the building for about $3 million, but he went tens of millions in debt to Madison Realty, which then began foreclosure proceedings. And the continuing saga of New York radio station WBAI's owner, the California-based Pacifica Foundation, continued in Lower Manhattan on Tuesday. Protesters have been hanging out on the street in front of the office of Pacifica Foundation General Counsel Arthur Z. Schwartz because they say he's trying to sell a building belonging to Pacifica Station KPFK in Los Angeles to pay his own legal bills. Outside, the group representing WBAI listeners, producers, longtime marijuana and Ibogaine activist Dana Beal, and publisher of the Westview News, 95-year-old George Capsis, all have bones to pick with lawyer Schwartz. Beal, a longtime friend of this reporter, says he was there in the lobby for me to get back my old job. Well, because I believe that Paul DiRienzo should be the news director of WBAI, and I'm really, really upset that I have to deal with this problem at all. If the world was as it should be, DiRienzo would be would have his old job back. Like why he wants this job? Well, probably not going to be able to make him the news director of the new Fox News after they lose their suit to Dominion and Smartmatic, and the judge assigns infinite punitive damages. That's probably not going to happen, Paul. But in an ideal world. Arthur Schwartz is also a Democratic district leader, an active member in the Village Independent Democrats Political Club, and longtime West Village resident who claims to be a labor lawyer. But he's also controversial, and not only because of his role at WBAI. In 2021, Schwartz represented Transit Workers Union Local 100 against a suit by a candidate for the local's presidency. The candidate is a former train driver, Evangeline Byers, who says she got involved in union politics because the TWU was unprepared for the COVID pandemic and put workers at risk. She spoke with labor reporter Steven Zeltzer a few days before the election. I've started calling the pandemic for transit workers our 9-11. When the pandemic struck, and we started knowing that the pandemic was actually in full swing. We saw what was going on in Wuhan. We got the report. They were talking about masks and ways to keep your health safe and things of that nature, that it was no way to stop it. It was definitely going to spread. Members started wearing masks, and they were told if they wore the mask that they would be taken out of service. 
They were threatened by management and things of that nature. Workers were threatened by management for wearing a mask. Yes, in the early days of the pandemic, right? Right before the pandemic hit, actually. So people were getting, you know, we were getting the reports from the news of what was going on. So as a result, we know that when people are traveling to and fro, your mode in New York City to get around to the airports, to different places, you take trains. We're so open and exposed to the general public. People started taking precautions, like, you know, wearing masks and things of that nature. And management said that they would reprimand us if we, we wore it. And so it was a back and forth for a while. The union never really stepped in to fix that. What happened was when they finally they went out that the city was being shut down due to a pandemic, everybody had to quarantine, we were made to stay at work. The first call of someone contracting COVID came from the work train division. The person called in and reported that they were being kept in the hospital, that they had been exposed to COVID. They had called the people who they were around to let them know that they needed to get out of work, that they needed to leave immediately and go get themselves checked because they had COVID and they were being kept. They were having like a hard time breathing, going through all of the symptoms of COVID. Being that I'm on the executive board and I used to be in the work train division, a lot of the guys have my number. So they gave me a call in the middle of the night. The call came in about three o'clock in the morning asking me what should they do. They just got a call. Someone may have had COVID. They were told that they do have COVID and what should they do? I said, well, you need need to immediately contact the supervisor and let them know. I'll call an emergency meeting with the president of the local and go in to let them know that it's time for them to put a plan in place. I contacted the president of the local. I went in to talk to him about what was happening. Someone tested positive, and we need to put a plan in place. I went in to meet with him, and they were very not concerned. The union's attorney's name is Dennis Engel. Mr. Engel instructed the president that there was nothing that he could do about this. There was no way to stop it, and there was nothing that they could do. When I talked to them about letting the membership know at large what they can do and that people are testing positive, and that they need to protect themselves, they told me that they could not let the membership know. It had to first go up to Albany, where the governor is, and it first had to go through some central registry, which was totally a lie, right? Once it came back down from Albany that these people tested positive, then, and only then, could they alert the membership. As a result, after I had that meeting with them, that was like on a Wednesday, by Friday, I had to go out and quarantine because I had now, I didn't test positive for COVID, but I was having all the symptoms of COVID. I did have COVID. From that time on, no one helping us from the local to make sure that we were safe. But Bayer says she never did get the chance. The candidate was disqualified just hours before the vote on a technicality. She says the election was stolen. This election the TW Local 100 union elections were stolen once again by the Samuelson Utano administration under the orchestration of a scheme to suppress the vote and dissent of the members of Local 100 by Arthur Swartz and the Elections Committee. We have documented proof that this is what has just occurred, and we need to talk about this and make sure 
that this never happens again. Byers adds she was the victim of a conspiracy engineered by Arthur Schwartz. Arthur Schwartz and his well-devised scheme to try to make it seem as if he is being, um, as if everybody's given an opportunity to participate, sends out ballots to members who are in bad standing, violating the Constitution and violating the election rules that they use to disqualify um, so many members that wanted to participate in this current election cycle. We are currently in court with them right now over these election rules, over Arthur Swartz's interference in this election, um, the, the well-orchestrated and devised scheme between him and the Elections Committee to thwart and throw off and to violate the rules that govern how unions are supposed to function. They implemented a rule change in the middle of the, of the election as of July 1st of 2021, which actually was already in effect by Arthur Swartz as of June 10th, as of June 10th executive board meeting. We have all of the evidence that shows that there was an orchestrated effort by local 100 attorneys to suppress the vote and to block who could participate in this upcoming election. The members of Local 100 should be outraged. There's no way that this is okay and that this is something that should be able to continue and to persist. Evangeline Byers is a former train driver for the New York City subway and a candidate for president of TWU, Local 100. She blames her disqualification in the race for president of the union on attorney Arthur Schwartz. And that's the news for Friday morning, March 24th, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.